Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by the Austin Building Enclosure Council. And here to tell you a little bit more about a great event they have coming up is their founder, Keith Simon. Keith, tell us what you got. Thanks, Miguel. We have a really exciting event coming up here in Austin on October 18th. It's going to be a full day symposium called X Enclosures at the Lime, which is the former Radisson Hotel right on the water. And we have our keynote speaker is going to be Lauren Ricketts from RDH. He is a fantastic speaker. He's going to be talking about continuous insulation and cladding attachments. And uh, I've seen this presentation before. It is, um, I was on the edge of my seat for the whole time. He goes through all their research and um, all the different clips and fiberglass attachments and metal attachments and quantifies how much energy loss and the performance of each of them. Um, for those of you who are really into um, enclosures and high-performance wall systems, our whole lineup for the whole day is it will keep you on the edge of your seat. So You heard it here first. If you're in Austin and you want to check this event out, we'll put a link in the show notes for this episode. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome to this. Uh, okay. Oh, welcome to the building science. To the building science podcast. 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 Welcome to the building science podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the building science podcast. I'm Christoph Ruin here, as always, with Miguel. Hey, guys. And I'm also here with my good friend Keith Simon, who's been on the episode before, and we are also here, we have the honor of being with Dwayne Johnlin from the city of Seattle. Uh, Dwayne, please elaborate on your role and tell us how you ended up there. I'm the Energy Code and Energy Conservation Advisor for the Building Department, Um, and and, uh, I was a practicing architect for 30 years, Mm. and uh, this, my predecessor, after an equally long time left this position and and uh, I managed to waltz into it. I think they hired me in fact because I'd never worked for the government before. My, <laughs> my, and my role is basically to to uh, write each successive edition of the Seattle Energy Code and uh, and cheerlead and teach and move it forward and I have a similar role with the state of Washington uh, guiding that committee forward to develop codes as far and fast as we can in a cost-effective way. That's such an important role for society, and we will talk about that. And I'm here, this is Keith, I'm here because I attended the ASTM Symposium on Air Leakage in San Diego earlier this year, and I saw Dwayne speak there, and um, Dwayne's uh, talk about what he's done with the city of Seattle and air leakage requirements was just really inspiring, and I just kept thinking the whole time, Man, we've got to do those things here in Austin too. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's why I wanted to connect Dwayne with Christoph and Miguel, and and all of you listening on the podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. So, what about the jump between practicing architect and your role now? Was it just a direct transition? They said, "Oh, we you know, this. people are in with plans, and I, I have to resist the urge to pull out my red pen and start telling them how they should really do a wall section, but." Um, <laughs> Uh, actually, that's not my role anymore. Um, Interesting. It, it is actually a highly creative thing that I get to do now, mm-hmm. maybe more so than when I was a practicing architect. 
And I noticed you didn't call yourself the Energy Code Czar. I think that would be a more appropriate term. Uh, people actually do mention, uh, refer to me as the energy code czar, um, oh, right. and they probably have other less polite ways to describe <laughs> me as well. Um, so my question is, how did you, I'm going to call you the czar, how did you move from practicing architect to energy code czar? So I, I was asked to apply uh, for this position, I was asked a couple times, and, and finally I did, and, and I was accepted. Um, perhaps largely based on the fact that I wasn't uh, a government employee up to that point, and I would have <laughs> sympathy for the construction crews and design teams yeah. and everybody else who's yeah. trying to make this real. Um, I think too many people in the code development space are not um, deeply enough into the actual practice of getting things built yeah. to understand uh, all the implications of it. Mm -hmm. That's really important. And so who asked you? You don't have to name names. But well, what type of person. It, uh, actually, it was uh, there was somebody who who called me up on the last day that this position was open and said, "Dwayne, is it going to kill you to just apply?" And uh, and and he was like one of the sustainability directors for Seattle. But uh, and then two weeks after I started, he left uh, for for New York, but uh, left me holding the bag. It it is actually a. a a highly creative position because we, uh, like Austin, like New York, like California, are are going out and trying to make new things that have never existed before to come up with some kind of a, a, a policy that could apply to every imaginable building that you're going to build in the next several years is and and to make it effective. It's difficult to conceptualize to begin with, and difficult to pin it down with just the right words that it could work for a grade school or a skating park or or anything else you might build. That's awesome. And listeners to this podcast will know we we have said many many times about you know what's between us and just fantastic buildings, multiple interlocking dimensions of beauty, right? Health, sustainability, durability, energy use. Um, is much more societal, cultural, relational, social, psychological than it is technical. So when you say creative, those are the dimensions, as well as it has to be crunchy and... No, it's absolutely true. Everything starts out as a technical discussion, but it rapidly becomes political and personal. Mm -hmm. And there's just no way around that. And that's not just energy, it's everything to do with, with buildings, because it's all wrapped up in tradition and buildings are incredibly expensive and everybody is as nervous as cats you know <laughs> about about these huge investments yeah. they're about to make and and uh, and people pretty much don't like being told what to do which yeah. means that being the code guy is uh, is not usually a popular position to be in so that might be a good segue to, to, for you Keith to yeah, how about I, I give an overview of air leakage, whole building air leakage testing, the metrics that are out there to lead into so that Dwayne can talk about what he's done with Seattle. And the lead-in is people don't like being told what to do. <laughs> right. So the, the code requirement for new um, non-residential commercial buildings is 0.4 CFM, that's cubic feet per minute, that's a volume of air per square footage of enclosure area, so per square footage of walls and roof and floor at tested at a certain pressure, 75 pascals. So that 0.4 
is a metric for the code minimum, which is really, really, really easy to meet. It, the problem is um, it's not a requirement for non-residential buildings to test for air, whole building air leakage. And so people just don't know what the air leakage rate of their buildings are. The reason why that's important is because air, air tightness of buildings is critical for energy performance. And it's kind of, I'd say, one of the last low-hanging fruits because mm. we've sort of maximized the right amounts of insulation levels, um, mechanical systems. Certainly, there's ways to go in, mm. in all, all pieces of it. But air leakage is mission critical, and we're just, as a country, not that good at it yet. Mm. So if point four is the the um, code requirement, then the US Army Corps of Engineers came up with their own standard and they developed 0.25 as their goal standard that they go for, felt that after a lot of testing and research that that is a reasonable metric. And then the Canadian standard is tighter than that, I believe it's 0.1 or 0.15. And then the, the tightest metric out there is the Passive House Institute US, which is at 75 pascals, it's 0.08 which is something like four times tighter than the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers standard. So Passive House is sort of looking at uh, ultimately what is the most energy efficient way to do a, a building, and it's a really, really airtight building. Mm -hmm. Of course, a lot of people will jump to the conclusion, isn't that bad for indoor air quality? Well, you have to ventilate correctly, and you have controlled ventilation. You actually have usually um, on these high-performance such as past house buildings, you have better indoor air quality because of the controlled ventilation rate. By the way, it is not a good thing. People say buildings need to breathe for some reason, but having window leaking around, wind coming leaking around your window frames is not uh, a smart way to do it because actually stuff is condensing in there and it's growing little microbial Absolutely. stuff that is then coming into your building. So it's actually rather yeah. unhealthy to have your air supply being leaked through your walls. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, buildings don't need to breathe; they need to dry out. Yeah, the, the metabolisms need to breathe. Uh, this is this to get started was one of the less popular things that we do, but I think it's one of the biggest bang for the buck things. It is not once you learn how to do it; it's not that much different to build a tight building than to build one that's leaky. And because you're using all the same materials, everybody's just paying more attention to, to uh, those interfaces. And, and, but the energy savings are huge because it looks like since we have introduced this requirement that, that leakage rates are about half what they were before. And, to, and that means that there's, there's that much less outside air coming in that has to be conditioned uh, to be comfortable. And, and, and replaced, that is, uh, if you tried to do that same amount of efficiency by using higher efficiency mechanical equipment, that'd be really expensive. Mm -hmm. But uh, just sealing things up, it's no big deal. The, uh, the trick is that, that leaks in the building don't occur through the face of the wall or the, they, what they do is they occur through the interfaces between where one trades work stops and the other ones start mm -hmm. and nobody's really responsible for that that little uh transition in between and and leaks happen or the, or the penetrations through the wall you know to put conduits through or pipes or whatever are usually badly sealed once you have the requirement in place and 
and you start doing this, then you've got the general contractor riding herd on everybody saying, no, 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 you can't do that anymore. We set the code requirement up in an unusual way. Uh, just to make this politically palatable to get started, we said, okay, you have to do the, the test, you have to report the results, you don't have to pass. There's no threshold. You, there's a threshold. There's a threshold. And, and if you don't pass, you have to do a few more extra things, but you can still get your occupancy permit. That was to because people were petrified about, you know, because as Keith just said, they don't actually know how leaky their buildings are, that they would be on the day before move-in trying to get this test finished and realize that they're failing. So we said, okay, you can still move in. What has happened is that is that now contractors are using this as sales material for going to their uh, potential customers and clients and saying, look, we got our leakage down to 0 0.3, 0 0.2. Uh, uh, that shows what better quality of, of work that we're doing. And so they've actually turned it to their advantage. And owners are starting to get savvy about this. There's one university system near us that is requiring really tight buildings from all their people, and they do require that as part of their contract. So it's got it into the vocabulary of what people do. Mm -hmm. So I want to reiterate that because it's it's almost you know earth-shattering that the whole building air leakage test is required, but there's essentially no penalty if you don't meet the, the code requirement, the 0.4 requirement, is that right? That's right. That's awesome. That, that, and so what's crazy about that is intuitively you think, well, then it must not make a difference. But what you're, you're saying is you've seen quantifiable results that, yeah, it does still makes a big difference. It's in everybody's awareness now, whereas it didn't used to be. And everybody starts to realize who it is that's making these leaks. And sometimes they were huge leaks that no one, you know, there's a, a, the point where a roof system meets the top of a wall is notorious there for for leakage. Mm -hmm. the, the place where the the big mechanical yeah mechanical <laughs> vents penetrate you know is uh, the, all these things have that now they they're doing really well nobody was really thinking about it or being aware of it there there's a favorite quote i have uh from mark frankel at the new buildings institute uh, his quote is that which exists must be possible <laughs> so, you know, uh, Keith was just talking about a, a leakage rate, a maximum leakage for passive house that's that's like 20% of what we allow. So it means that there somebody's doing buildings that are at that level of tightness, and they're and doing well, them over and over, and they're yeah, and they're making making it pass. So, yeah. my intention is to introduce to Seattle this coming code cycle that yeah, you got to pass. Mm -hmm. And that'll be that'll be the next. How, thing. how many years have you been with the just the growing awareness or the pump priming phase? Or I think that that has been uh, in our codes for eight years now. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first, I should say, the first couple times out of the gate so for everybody years. were uh, challenging, to put it politely, and and there were often crews in there all night, like running around trying to figure out why things weren't working, and and eventually somebody would realize there was a big escutcheon plate that just hadn't been put in or there were thresholds missing or something like that that was mm -hmm. messing it up. So mm -hmm. little by little, they've been figuring this out. So now instead of, I, I, I actually interviewed a number of them and, and their number of hours invested has dropped dramatically. The technology they use for the, for the testing equipment has improved and, and everybody's knowledge about how they have to do this has improved and the coordination 
between the testers and the general contractors has improved. Yeah, it's clear that what's happening is you've you've managed to shift the culture of your industry, which is profound. You hit the right word because all these things with with uh, the changes we're demanding in building construction are culture shifts, mm-hmm. and and uh, that makes it really difficult. It's it's somewhat easier in a city like Seattle because we have. Uh, we're, we're actually blessed with a, a, an array of general contractors, testing firms, engineers who are top-notch and, and uh, do, do terrific work so they can handle it best. Uh, then, as a culture shift, this starts to get to the smaller contractors gets, and, and then starts to move out to the smaller towns and more rural areas. I think with these culture shifts in in building construction, which is very resistant to change, right? Everything, everyone wants to just be able to do it like they did the last building. Uh, that it might take a full decade from the time that a place like Seattle or Austin or New York starts doing something until it's its way out to the furthest reaches mm-hmm. of the state, or even longer. And it's interesting. Uh, well, a few things. This quote comes up. That someone that I like, someone once said, what does he know of London, he who only London knows? Uh, and so, uh, you know, what does he know of Central Texas building techniques, if that's all you know? What does he know? But but getting back to, see, and I noticed a huge difference. So we work projects in Seattle, and here I am in Austin, which is no slouch, you know, for energy code and for quality. And, and I work residential, very kind of high-end projects. Go to Seattle and just am so impressed with the 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 buy-in from the architects, the general contractors are incredibly knowledgeable, and then that's where I want to go. So you've achieved buy-in from the GCs. You've even achieved peacocking around air control layers, air control measurements from the trades. And I don't know how that just happens. You just described it, and that's my question now, as you were blessed with these trades, as though the angels sang and delivered to you some GC, <laughs> but you attracted them, or you grew no. them? How did you, how did that No, uh, uh, Seattle has a, a pretty good culture of quality all around, and and uh, people up there would be would be surprised to hear me saying all these nice things about them, because <laughs> mostly That's I'm only crazy. giving them grief when, when they, they fall short <laughs> of the mark, but... Uh, I've I've heard that many times. Oh yeah, that's easy for you to do in Seattle, but yep. you know, out here, we've got the contractors we've got and like that. But still, all these people know each other and they get together for meetings and and you know, staff moves from firm to firm, and so that's the way these things can disseminate from the from the top notch general contractors and and uh, and consultants out to the to the people who are doing you know, simple design build office yeah. parks or something like that. Yeah. Just takes a while. You got to be patient. How it took eight years, but well, it, more than that, really. Yeah, uh, yeah. It takes more than that. We we also actually in the in Washington State have for for a longer period of time, uh, over a decade, required air barrier testing for houses, and and in that case, you do have to pass. And uh, our Washington State University has done this tremendous outreach program over all these years. Yeah, they're very well respected. And the local contractors have have learned how to do this and learned how to do tighter buildings, and they also are out bragging about how 
theirs are better than the guys down the street. Uh, people, people want to do good work, and they people want to be admired for what they're doing. So, so, like we said at the beginning, this this tends to be more about you know personalities and passions, you know, than about than about reason. Well. You can piggyback on that. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to um, clarify one second for your listeners about um, whole building air leakage testing, because I probably a lot of them are familiar with blower door testing, mm-hmm. where you put um, a fan in the door of, say, a, a, resident, a single-family residential house, and you pressurize it and measure its air leakage. And whole building air leakage testing of commercial or larger buildings is the exact same idea. It's just way scaled up and gets more complicated in order to do so. So on, say, a 50,000 square foot office building, maybe you need 12 fans instead of one fan, and you sp- you have to spend all day long prepping and sealing and figuring everything out. So it's a much bigger endeavor, uh, but it's still kind of the same idea. So Dwayne, are there any limits to what you've tested, or what, what are some of the largest projects out in Seattle that have been tested? We have tested uh, skyscrapers, and and uh, actually we've come up with a uh, a routine for that because once you get Neat. more than about eighteen stories or so tall, it's very hard to pressurize the whole building equally like they need for these these tests. So we've we've come up with a routine where they are able to isolate floors. Usually you have the floor above where you're te- above and below where you're testing. Can be pressurized so that you're not losing mm-hmm. air in that direction. So guarded. Because we're trying to just check it out. So they would test the ground floors, which are full of you know loading docks and entry doors and all these kind of things. But then for the tower part, for every ten stories that that we go up, I say they they call me when there's ten stories ready to test, and I pick two adjacent floors. So they've got floors 12 through 21 ready to go. I say, okay, 17 and 18. And then... Always 17 and 18. Nope. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so they then do whatever final prep work it is, and they test those two floors. And I say, okay, if those pass, then the whole stack passes. It's turning out to be less of an issue with the those whole, That whole stack of 10. 20. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And because actually curtain wall systems are very beautifully engineered things that fit together perfectly every time. It's kind of a miracle. They're just really precise. And and so we don't have any problem with the curtain wall portion of it. And yeah, then we have them do another test for the top floors and, and they're done. And that, that way they only have to kick people out of one reasonably small area at a time. It, it's difficult scheduling for these people because because yeah, usually there, the there, somebody's in there practically 24-7 on a, on a rush project. There's always an electrician or a painter or somebody. And, and so to close down a whole building site and say, all you guys go home for the next eight hours or whatever while we test is tough. This way, with a bigger building, we can do it chunk by chunk. Mm-hmm. A similar thing has to apply for a couple other situations. One is... is um, multifamily buildings that, that have the entrances from outdoor balconies right. instead of an indoor corridor. You can't pressurize a whole thing and you obviously don't have 52 separate fans to do all the 52 units, right? So so I have a routine for testing a certain number of those and also for multi-tenant retail that has its own entrances and stuff. And those go at different schedules, so you have to be able to test one chunk at a time.
so the test is required. Um, there's no significant penalty to not meeting code, but you also have um, incentives for meeting the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers standard of 0.25. Is that right? Well, uh, the the code in Washington State requires that you pick two above code things out of a list of eight things to do, in addition to everything else. And one of the possibilities is to test to a tighter standard. And yes, depending on the the building type, 0.25 is typically it. And and so people who have been building the same kind of building repeatedly and have confidence, they know they always beat it by a mile, those people can go ahead and, and uh, use that as one of their above code notions. The, the trick is though, if you choose that, you gotta pass. Because we have, you know, that that's considered an, a, an additional thing. Interesting. I should say also that this last code cycle, uh, Seattle chose to go from the 0 .40 standard down to 0 .30. I had suggested that that we go to the that Corps of Engineers standard at 0.25, but I can remember all the testing agency people in the room and the general contractors looking at each other and going, uh, "No, that's a little too scary. We're not we're not ready for 0.25." And then and then somebody said, "Well, 0.3 that would work," and they all started nodding. They, I think because they've gotten that experience, they know that 0.3 is achievable, mm -hmm. and and uh, and that that most of their projects were already hitting that anyhow. Yeah, it's important. So, are you there in the building on site when these tests are going on? No, it's actually an interesting point. Once they once they seal everything up and turn on the fans, nobody goes in or out the whole length of the test, and that could be a long time. And so, I've been in watching them prep for these tests. But otherwise, I get the test results, mm. uh, you know, afterwards, and and uh, so you guys for a video or a picture, or it was just no. The, the testing agency, uh, no, third party, says what it is, and and they show the building inspector, you know, the their certificate that that they certify that this was the leakage rate for that. If they didn't pass, which is pretty rare actually, but if they didn't, then they show that they also did some extra steps to try to find the leaks and seal them up. Mm -hmm. But we haven't asked for a, a, another test. Mm -hmm. That's great. I just want to say something that's a little irreverent. One of the reasons, in my opinion, that as a society, as a culture, we're, we're, we're so okay to test air leakage is because, and you mentioned the curtain wall thing, and I'd already written this note, but the curtain wall, it's like, it is the least. It is the last remaining low-hanging fruit, except for the all-glass enclosure, which is still okay. And you know, Seattle has actually relative compared to us, well, compared to really cold climates, relatively moderate climate. But you have a long, relatively cool period, right? So you have right. a lot of heating degree days. I just wonder if if the culture could shift on glazing. When did a wall ratio? The only the only building types that want to have and, and demand to have large areas of glass are high-rise office and high-rise residential. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is is just fine with 30% or so of their building, you know, their wall area. So uh, what's up with that? <laughs> uh, it, it's it's real expensive real estate and, and, and uh -huh. they want that wow factor mm -hmm. and they want the extra glazing. Uh, this is not the end of the world. There's all kinds of ways that energy is used or saved in buildings and, and uh, it, it I would like to not see any more 60 or 70 percent glazed buildings, which I've seen down here in Texas, where you got real weather, winter yeah. and summer, and <laughs> and uh, it's kind of crazy. But it is. but um, 
40%, 45% glazing, uh, uh, we're finding ways to deal with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also remember that with the, the air barrier testing requirement in place for all buildings all the time, and, and with our stringent requirements for insulation and for quality of, of, of glazing and all that, our, the balance point for heating is pretty low. You have to get pretty, pretty cool out there. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and in the afternoon, after a building's been occupied all day, it, it could, I don't know, it might get down close to freezing before you have to really? start I was wondering. heating on. Got a really good building enclosure, got a lot of occupancy and computers going and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's not so bad. Early in the morning, you know, when people are first coming in and they're just getting started, yeah, you, you're going to need uh, a, a fair amount of heat to get that going. One thing that came up early on for me, so I'm a physicist and an engineer, and years ago I worked in a wind tunnel, mm -hmm. and uh, air is mass, air is very heavy, so when you say CFM, you're talking about a mass right. flow rate, and you're not talking about a low number of pounds of air, you're talking a big commercial building could have millions of pounds of air in it, tens of thousands of which are leaking across the enclosure. So if you imagine 10,000, you know, let's say 60,000 pounds of air at the outdoor temperature made it into your building, well of course. And I like to say that because people think, oh, air, it's fluffy, and it's this little thing, and it's a little bit cool. You know, if you say, let's say, 50,000 pounds of air at 45 degrees entered your building unbidden, well, people can go, which is not inaccurate, right? right. It could be that much or more. Then it's like a, it's in your gut. It's like, oh, 50,000 pounds of a cold fluid entered my building, and I need to heat it up. Uh, it's a lot of computer monitors. It's a lot of human beings. Well, you know, with older buildings, the the there were often temperature complaints around the perimeter of the building. <laughs> kind of old single glazed building with leaky yeah. walls and like that. That that was often brutal. And so, they, you know, older buildings always had yeah, heating baseboard. sources, baseboard below the windows to try to counteract the draft that was coming down and balance it out. But that is really you, you have to start moving that out of your mind for mm -hmm. for new buildings because because those. You know, we require thermally broken frames and, and these very highly insulated walls and slabs and stuff. So so people right up against the wall are, are usually quite comfortable in one of these new buildings. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was great that you brought up highly glazed buildings because <laughs> on the ride over here, Dwayne and, and I were actually talking just about that issue and, and what a challenge it is. And I have not just one or two, but several almost, I would say, Dwayne was worried about, you know, not buildings that are 60 to 70% window-to-wall ratio, but trying to bring it down to 40 to 50. I have several buildings I'm consulting on that are above 90% window-to-wall ratio here in Austin, Texas. And it's a major, like you said, it has to be a cultural change among our fellow architects about mm -hmm. understanding the glare that, that, that comes in, a, the heat gain, the uh, lack of uh, interior quality space. Yeah. And then the other thing Dwayne and I were chatting about earlier was that when, and granted, when, when these architects are forced to scale back that window to wall ratio, and those, those successes are few and far between, but when they are, and it usually comes not from us, but from a code requirement. It simply will not pass code. Once I wonder about that. We'll talk about that. Maybe. That they usually do a great job of it. That they scale back the window-to-wall ratio, include really nicely designed shading devices mm -hmm. or, um, you know, spandrel panels or whatnot. Sorry, not spandrel panels, but um, opaque wall assembly pieces um, that 
in my mind, it seems like the design is dramatically improved. Oh yeah, the 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 building on Roosevelt Island that's passive house, multifamily. It's beautiful, right? It's got low, like forty percent. The the any of us who have been through design school know the fascination with this sort of pristine view of Florida ceiling, wall-to-wall glass, you know, with everything all perfectly flat and skinny and even all around the entire building uh, enclosure. Like an Apple store. This sort of, yeah, this sort of, this sort of glass purity, which we all learn to sort of honor. But, you know, that has, I think the earliest renderings of those all-glass buildings are from an entire hundred years ago, right? They would be like 1920. Wow. Was when that first started to appear in an architect's imagination. And I, I can't help but think that that the day is coming, perhaps soon, when when the, the fad finally dies after yeah. a century and and the, the next round of architecture students are going, what a boring building. It's just like glass, you know, all over and like <laughs> it, and it's really kind of uncomfortable. Awesome. It's you know, you don't have any privacy, you know, it's it it gets cold at the wall. It's like the shag carpeting or yeah. something like glass <laughs> buildings like shag Yeah, so it might be that there's this whole round of high fashion, highly glazed buildings that, that just looks really dowdy and old soon. Well, I look forward to that day. <laughs> you know, the whole idea of passive survivability, right? You know, I was just thinking about the numbers. Keith has the numbers here written down. 0. 0.4, 0. 0.25, 0. 0.15, 0. 0.08. And then that mass metaphor, by the way, if we were just to start with 0. 0.4 and go to 0. 0.08, it would be tremendous difference in the terms of... Now, remember, though, that, that Keith has the thing pressurized at 75 Pascal, which is n- nothing to sneeze at. That's like yeah. some serious pressure yeah. uh, on a non-windy day. You know, it's uh, oh, it's much lower. Five percent right. of that, or something right. like that. That's a good point. It's a good point in the real world. So I know RDH Labs is up in the Northwest. They have an office right. in Seattle, and I know they've been working up there for a number of years, at least as a resource for information flow. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, society is you could you could consider human society as an information flow structure from natural sources of energy through our society to our end users. Right. And so one of these sources of flow is information flow, right? Like uh, you mentioned, the problem is not the materials, the problem is the workmanship. Just down the street here, there's a residential structure. They used um, Huber Zip System, Huber Zip System. And they're putting in their windows, and the bright, shiny, raw OSB in the corner of the window is very visible. And they've used the flashing, and it's in, and I'm walking my dog kind of like, well, they'll definitely fix that. Next morning, they're stuccoing it. I actually got some pictures, and and I'm just I'm just incredulous, like running around, like I have to tell someone, like all the windows in this house are gonna leak, they're gonna rot. Uh, anyway, it's an example of the right materials. There was a person standing there with a razor knife, right? They just didn't have the right workmanship. And so information flow is very important. Do you think that RDH or other groups or you know, someone like yourself, an individual, can have an impact over time? Tell me about that. You don't have to yeah. say yes. You can no. say, ah, not really. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, RDH actually is, is one. There are not only them, but there's two other 
tremendous uh, enclosure firm. Build, building science uh, firms in town, and, and maybe I would even include a third in that Neat. list of, of uh, uh, as far as information flow, it depends on the not only on who's trying to say something, but on how receptive the, the mm, hearer that's is. That's a really good point. I try to, I do a lot of, of speaking to various uh, stakeholder groups, and and I like meeting them on their own turf, you know, at their own regular meeting time, you know, as an invited guest. Uh, that sort of opens it up better than me just marching in and trying to tell people stuff. Because so nobody wants somebody like me telling them how to do their business, uh, for sure. <laughs> and and uh, and yeah. if if I'm seen as credible and not just trying to push one one viewpoint, if I'm uh, and and especially if I'm open to some circularity, where where somebody can stand up there and and tell me why you know this rule that I just came up with is not going to work or is causing problems or something like that, then then we can have an information flow. I, I don't think there's just such a thing as a one-way information flow. I no, think you're right. You're going to get that circular to and fro, and and if you're credible and if you're honest and and you're not trying to BS anybody, then that will get out there, and it'll take some time. But if you've got somebody convinced that what you're talking about is worthwhile, then they can become your ambassador going forward to reach somebody that would never talk to you. Do you go people share notes? Because I know Michael Houston and John Umfress in our neighbor in our city here are in positions to make decisions like you've made. And I'm more the voice like, oh, come on. Let's, let's drag ourselves forward here, please. And instead, they're making relationships, they're listening, they're, they're you know, taking give and take. And, and I actually have great respect for that. I'm a little frustrated. It takes so long. But um, is, it a, is it a known practice to um, negotiate and barter and take time to build relationships? We have Do you code people quote air quotes. No, we <laughs> talk we, about that. It it happens in the margins of the official processes. Interesting. And so you know our our state code development process, which we're right in the thick of right now. Two days from now, I'll be chairing another meeting of that. Wow. It is is chair. quite formalized. Uh, I'm, I'm the chair of the of the the technical advisory group, which then. Uh, comes up with a list of recommendations that goes to the full State Building Code Council for their consideration. But it's a formalized process. We have Robert's Rules of Order. We have you know deadlines and, and formats and all that. In the midst of that, we start to talk and and we have experts around the table who can can f- catch me if I'm about to like go down some path that's going to mess everybody up. And so I actually this job description increases your level of modesty a lot because without all these other people chiming in their expertise you know we've got a commissioning expert you know Teresa's great we've got a, a, a lighting expert a couple of HVAC experts and and each of these different sort of viewpoints impinges on the decisions we make and and it gets it's better and then just in the you know, we stop. We have a break for sandwiches at a certain point, and say, "Okay, we gotta um, somehow come to a resolution on this thing." And people start putting ideas up on the wall, and we by by that 
sort of informal processes that are happening around the perimeter of the formal process, it gets better. And a similar thing happens with the city. We have public meetings and and we announce, you know, we're going to be talking about commissioning this time and all the commissioning people show up and they'll let me know they're not shy at all if, I've, <laughs> if, I've, if I'm going down the wrong way. But, but even, I find over and over the opposition, uh, even people who are just dead set against energy codes altogether, they will find flaws with what we're doing. But it's really welcome because then we find a way to fix the flaw mm-hmm. before it goes out into the real world and, and starts causing a, a problem. Well, as so. far as whether we communicate with each other, you know, from from city to city, it's really hard, you know, because we have we all have limited travel budgets because we work for cities, you know, <laughs> and 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 so we meet each other at these conferences once in a while and there's a lot of email exchange. Right. You know, I heard a rumor that you're doing something on on air barrier testing, you know, can you send me that? And and so there's a an informal exchange, but it would um, we'd all benefit from having having more of a structure to to not have to go through the same learning curve independently for every issue. Mm-hmm, I agree. So I have a question here. I have several. So I want to talk about the code that is currently there that you, you say actually is going to uh, right now, you have a guideline or a threshold of this 0.4 um, ACH at 75 pascals, mm-hmm. right? But you don't have to pass that. Um, so I have two questions. I'll start with the right. first, and I can remind mm-hmm. you. So about the second one. The first one is, when did that idea to make a, a, a non-binding threshold be the approach for code first come up? And... Um, there's like a three-part question, but maybe you can get mm-hmm. When did it first come up? How was it received? Like, did people go, <laughs> yeah, that, that'll never work. Or, so when did it first come up? How was it received, if you remember? And, you know, how did you make it work? Who was the first one that said, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to do this. We're at least going to try this. I think that, and, and, you know, you're asking me, like, to remember some meeting, you right. know, from hundreds of meetings uh, several years back. You but ad lib. Yeah, but I think the way it happened was that that the proposal to require uh, an air leakage standard was out there, and then there was just this parade of people, you know, going, "What are we going to? What are you going to red tag this thing and like have us sitting there with a building that?" no one can occupy because we're missing the standard by a little bit you know and it's not like it's not like we've caused a life safety problem or something like that it's some you know we're talking about Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. a, a little miss and and uh i think it might have been my idea to to say well what if we what if we don't require that we pass it and and uh so if it wasn't my idea, I was somewhere in the room and it was somebody else's and I'm just taking uh, credit for it now. But um, it, And then that idea, that said, yeah, maybe. That emerged. And, and I, I did bring it up once at a national code hearing and it got laughed out of the room like, <laughs> right immediately. We can't have our code requirement and then not require that you meet the code requirement. Code but, suggestion. But it's, it's actually, as a transitional strategy, mm-hmm. it's a really good one because because before that, nobody had any idea what the leakage rate was. In fact, if you want to do a baseline comparison, what, what, how does it change from the old you know, way of doing things to the current way of doing things? How much progress did we make? It's very hard to do because nobody's buildings are tested and they're not gonna like empty out the building for several hours and test, you know, 
And so you don't really know what to compare with. So now everybody knows how well their buildings are doing and they've learned techniques for getting it down under the wire. And, and so the confidence is there that I think when I propose this next year that it will, that, that it will be well received. Uh, or maybe it won't be. Okay. There's still actually, when you think about it, the question, okay, what if you require it now and they, it still doesn't pass? We, there was one, one uh, tall building that I won't name, but it was very heavily architected, um, all kinds of crazy angles and, and projections from this building, and, and they, weren't, they tried and tried and they weren't able to make it pass, even though it was a curtain wall building. Just, you know, because of the, uh, it was architecturally unusual. So you have a situation like that. I had this idea that you could set up a schedule of penalties payable in solar panels. No, it sounds kind of silly, but you'd say, okay, we're, we're missing the standard by, you know, 5% and, and somebody do a calculation and say, well, that would be so much energy that you've lost in the course of a year. And, and therefore, that's a, a, a five solar panel penalty, you know, because you missed by this, by, by this chunk. Something so that you wouldn't, the, the bank would, would never lend if they knew that, that there was a chance that they could have this whole investment for $80 million or whatever and not have it occupied. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. But, but if you give them some way to deal with it and just make sure that it's always easier and less painful to pass, than, than to do whatever the penalty is. Mm -hmm. you, want, you want people to avoid the penalty thing. Still, uh, the other side of that is that, okay, it's another way that energy you know, use is decreased, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so there's a certain equivalence there. Yeah. Dwayne, I missed one thing. You said um, you're proposing a change in the coming year. What, that, what does that change? Well, that, that would be to, to, to go from, from uh, you don't have to pass to, yeah, you got to pass. And not only that, it has to be 0.3, not 0.4? It's already 0.3. Oh, it's okay. 0.3, not 0.4, yeah. excuse me. So, well, the state code uh, level is still at 0.4, and, and our current Seattle code City. is 0.3. Okay. And, and it, it really, since everybody had plenty of notice and they were already pretty much there anyway, it's, it hasn't been a problem. Okay. Well... Maybe the second part of my question isn't that important, and I'm tempted to go a different direction, but the second part was going to be, you said, oh, if you don't pass, you, have, you get to choose from a list of a, a few other things. I think you said there was eight. Oh, no. Um, How did, what is it, what sorry, happens if you don't pass? This was uh, not to do with passing or not passing. This is uh, oh, okay. the, the two above code options that you have to pick from our list of eight options. And so there are, you can do more efficient lighting, uh, mechanical systems, water heating, uh, solar on the roof. I get there, it. There are so it had nothing to do with now, not passing and, the air. And one of those is to hit a tighter air barrier standard. Okay, 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 good. Well, good. So you mentioned that this just came up, the, the challenge of comparing new versus old. It seems that you could take a, a building of similar size and just compare energy use and calculate EUI out. Of, of you know building from the 80s versus a well that would not be fair because um, oh, you really need you really need to compare it with a building that was somehow built in the same market without this requirement um, but you could say uh, compare it with with say a Portland building or a Boise building perhaps uh, it would be point. be a, a similar you know similar enough uh, market and climate zone and like that to be able to say well we're um, how it compares, but uh, there's 
there's some testing uh, that's out there on existing buildings. I've seen a list of them. And, and also, most people beat the test standard by quite a bit. Wow. And, and because they don't want to like be over that line, and so they, hmm. they, and it turns out that it's really, as as the passive house people will tell you, it's just not that big of a deal. Yeah. Okay. That's good. It, it's a big it's a big deal when you have to change the way you build things from the beginning. One of the things about Energy Code that I, I don't think people realize, which, which is very important, is that it's basically a societal agreement among people. And it's society agreeing with itself to set targets, to, to kind of plan the way it evolves and what's important to us. And we as a culture have said, yeah, well, energy and you know, material resource conservation is important. And that's what's happening here is you're saying, okay, well, and then how do we make that happen? Well, not specifics? only that, it, it is... Um, critical that it be a mandatory requirement. All the above code programs out there that get all the publicity and they're so lovely aren't really moving the construction industry at all. What moves the construction industry is when you don't have any choice. If you want a building permit, this is how you have to do it. Then the miracle of capitalism kicks in and people start figuring out smarter, more cost-effective ways to do things, and, and it rapidly becomes the new normal, whereas if you're doing, if you want to do a, a lead platinum building or something like that, it's all one-off, special order, uh, high-risk mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. And so making it normal, it's going to be a difficult learning curve every time. It's painful for the whole bunch. It's, Lot, understandably lots of complaining and then it becomes just the way we do things and that's wow. what is important about things being a regulatory system rather than just a voluntary feel good wow man so that unfortunately we're trying to wrap up you just let the cat out of the bag <laughs> I mean that's the bombs in the sense that um, looks a living building challenge comes up like LBC in some sense, you could say Living Building Challenge absolutely changes the paradigm. If you say, look, this is possible, right? What was your quote? It was, that which uh, exists must be possible. And in Seattle, we can point up the hill at the Bullet Center and yeah, say exactly. where living building people are and say, sure, they did it. And So you're saying it's a us. both and. and it, it, it sounded like you were saying LBC oh, no. doesn't matter. It's just code that no, it's what it. The great thing about Living Building Challenge, about some of the lead passive things and others, thing. Passive House, is that is that as markers out in the sand further along, they show that this is possible mm-hmm. and they start to develop techniques to do these things at a small scale. But that impacts maybe, if you take all those programs together, yeah. maybe 3% or something of the total commercial construction. And the energy impact is fractional, you're saying. Tiny. But, but it but, turns the super but tank. It, it, it could be that that's where we look for the next idea to move up that floor, which says, no, this is what you got to do. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've often internally here, Miguel and I have called passive house and living building like like lighthouses or beacons in the dark, and you need to know which way to move. Uh, I'm sure they'd love hearing that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so where, where I thought we were going to go, and ask both of you this one, is um, since I live in Austin, 
and it's hot and humid here and well, actually, not since it's hot and humid since I live in Austin I care about this oh I'm interrupting my own thought so human caring was at the point of this this idea that here you are on this board and you're going to be the chair of the technical advisory group you know it's a professional role and it, but underneath it there's this human that you are and you care about your world and you care about your job and then there's a GC who cares and a subcontractor who cares and a developer who cares and so I think we I don't want to lose sight as you know technicians and technical people that there's this soft side of it too that you just care about what you do you know we we all are really uh, proud of the work we do yeah. everybody that you just mentioned that whole that mm-hmm. whole extended team is really into this. Yeah. And and how cool is it that I get to go to work every day on arguably the most critical issue facing our time. Yep. And and get to be right in the right in the middle of the scrum. That's so cool. Well said. So wh- how can Austin follow your lead? What can we do here in Austin? Either one of you. So I would say Testing is so important. I mean, it doesn't, not just air leakage testing, mm-hmm. right? You do um, mechanical testing and right. um, duct testing, and we do um, water testing of fenestration, all, all kinds of testing. We learn so much from testing. And so we have to do more testing. I mean, we do, we're already doing it, requiring it for residential, but we need to require it for commercial. And there was a, a it was in the code and then it came out of the code and people said well you know um what are we going to do if it doesn't passes and we can't figure out the ramifications and i almost want to slap myself and say the answer was right in front of us you know uh, seattle figured it out you don't need a ramification it's so crazy but it's perfect just get the data and let people know where they are personally i've never learned so much about buildings as when we've done whole building air leakage testing just walking around and listening for the air infiltration oh, and yeah. feeling it and and that translates into better detailing and better knowledge. I mean, it, it is truly trying to developer be there. Yes. <laughs> feel it too. Yeah, so just tell them how exciting it is. <laughs> It'd be a hard the, sell. The critical thing is that <laughs> nobody in Texas wants to hear how they do it in Seattle. You're going to get booted out of the room with one of those That's cowboy right. boots they have down here. <laughs> and and so you're going to have to understand, yeah, <laughs> what, what their what their values and their worries are and and respond to that and respect it and 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 be there with them and it's only at the point where you become people's respected expert or advisor that that you're going to be able to break through because otherwise the force will always be in the direction of leave us alone we know how to do things we want to be left to do things the way we like it the best. Yeah. And so if you're going to be pushing change, you have to you have to understand it from their viewpoint and you have to make your viewpoint be an attractive thing that they want to come to. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's it's a good trick, but like you said, we're talking technology, but we're really in in human nature. Yeah, we're in the heart. I think that's a great place to end. I, I can tell you from my heart, I've really personally enjoyed getting to know you and talking to you and sharing ideas. Um, And thank you for being here. Thank Thank you for having me, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. And Miguel. And thank you all for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye.